Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So many white guys. So many. So many white guys. So white. How much whiteness? All over the place. God damn. Welcome to this new episode of So Many White Guys from W. That one's hard. Oh, WNYC Studios. I'm Phoebe Lynn Robinson here with my girl, Joni Mitch. Hi, Phoebe. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. How are you? I'm good. I'm liking your overall moment. Thank you so much. Corduroy overall. Has that nice corduroy sound. Oh, yeah. a, a friend of mine recently posted on Twitter, like, <laughs> corduroy is disgusting. Who's still wearing it? <laughs> and I was, like, wearing my corduroy overalls, like, oh, man. <laughs> okay, Joni, I have a serious question. No more joking around. Oh, sorry. I have a, this is a serious podcast. Okay, I'm embracing myself. So, buckle up. Okay, I'm okay. ready. This is... Hard-hitting, Phoebe. Sometimes I'm Oprah and sometimes I'm Leslie Stahl. Who's Leslie Stahl? (laughs) She's uh, one of the co-hosts of 60 Minutes. Am I the only person who used to watch 60 Minutes with their parents? My The only character (laughs) from 60 Minutes I both know and relate to. It's not a character. They're like reporters and journalists. (laughs) Okay. Counterpoint. (laughs) Andy Rooney. I love Andy He's Rooney. He's a character, though. Okay, good no, point. Not. Good watches. Point. <laughs> I can't make out what it is with people and watches. After all these years, you'd think CBS could have spent a little more money and given me a watch with numbers on it. I love him so much. Let's, okay, anyway, Leslie Stahl, sorry. Okay, serious, hard-hitting question. Joni? Yeah? Do you like sport? No. You don't like any sport? Mm-hmm. Gymnastics. Mm. You know what? I do like figure skating. Okay, okay. Uh, my partner is obsessed with baseball. Okay, who's his team? The Yankees, like hardcore. Ooh, like yeah. he's on the blogs. Oh, we go to baseball games in the summer. Cute. I usually have a weed gummy and just eat French fries out of a plastic baseball cap. Strike three. I mean, I that's think that's my fine. sport. Okay. That's my sport. Now, I know you, you are obsessed with sports. I like sport. Was that like something that you would watch with your parents growing up? Or like, how did you first get I interested? I watched with my brother, I think ever since I was like a little kid. I don't really remember a time not watching sport. Uh, I'm only going to call it sport okay. from now on. Do, uh, is that what they do in Britain? That's what journalists do. Oh, sorry. What are those? <laughs> Who? Okay, sorry. Please continue about sport. Um, tennis. I love good tennis. I think Bay and I are going to go to Wimbledon. Oh, this summer is Pete Sampras playing? He retired literally <laughs> a decade ago. He's forty-eight. <laughs> you mean Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
Oh wait. Okay. No, you can't. You can't look it up. No, no, no. Name one active male tennis player. Okay. No, but this is crazy. Did you know that Andrea Agassi and Barbara Streisand dated? Okay, that's off topic. And How is that off topic? I said name one active male tennis player. Strike <laughs> <Dry> three. <laughs> well, you already took all of mine. Uh, Djokovic. Is that a Djokovic? <laughs> Wait, so have you been to Wimbledon before? I haven't. I've only been to the U.S. Open. Um, I went last fall. I took Queen Mai, my lovely assistant Mai Huen, and we had box seats, baby. That's amazing. Yeah, so that was, like, pretty cool. Because, we like, the box seats are truly kind of nuts. And Wanda Sykes was in my box with me and Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> what a duo. I know. And then me. <laughs> you know that saying where yeah. it's like, if you could have dinner with mm-hmm. like two people living or dead, like yeah. I feel like the two people who you had in your box seat are like, yeah. what a dream combo. Yeah. I would say, I don't want to have dinner with you though. You don't want to. If only ha- had two people, it would be Prince and. Ooh. Michelle Obama would be cool. Yeah. She's really fun. We haven't had a meal yet. I feel like dinner with Prince, he would, like, not even have to use his hands or arms and would be able to make, like, the fork and knives levitate towards him. Do you know what I mean? I feel like he just has pure magic. Yeah. Nothing against Colin and Wanda, but I'm like, living or dead, Prince is obviously taking up one of those slots. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. So the call to action is to get Michelle Obama, come on, Mish. We're doing these book tour dates together. Give me your cell phone number already. Give me your email. I don't need your main email. You don't have to give me your Gmail. I'll take a Hotmail, right? An AOL. You've got mail. AOL. Earthlink. Earthlink. Juno. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do a long dinner. I don't want brunch. I want dinner, honey. Just two clicks in her G-Cal and it could happen. Yeah. You know? So call to action. Get Mish to have dinner with me. <laughs> and we got to get Joni into some sport. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Enough of this sexy ass jock talk. Enough about your sweet ass corduroy overalls. Thank you. <laughs> Time for a commercial break. <laughs> God damn. You know what? We got to move on to the guest at hand for today because she's a damn inspiration to so many people. I'm talking about Jamel Hill. You guys, Jamel has been a journalist covering sports for decades. She even hosted Sports Center on ESPN. And Joni, if you knew anything about sports, no shade. You would know that is a major deal. I used to watch ESPN when I would get home from high school. Honestly, Jamel Hill is like the only person who's on ESPN that I could name. I'm going to school you about ESPN later and all the cool sports things. But I want to get back to Jamel's work because she's brilliant and I was trying not to fangirl about her. But the thing that I really think is really cool about her is, yeah, she talks about sports and it's really like badass to see a black woman talking about sports and like being in these prominent positions. But she also talks about like race, identity and gender. And I think 
that sort of cross-section tends to be sort of shied away from in sports. And so she really puts that in the forefront. And um, I think if you guys are familiar with Jamel, you probably know her from 2017 when she just fired off a tweet that for some reason shocked the world. And she said that Donald Trump was a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. And she stood by that. And I'm also like, is that controversial? Yeah. You know, I think she's just assessed the facts and how he wasn't sort of, you know, calling out white nationalists and was just sort of like, this is kind of messed up for the country. Um, But yeah, this whole tweet really sort of blew up and sort of like rocked a lot of waves. Like the White House was calling for her to like be fired and it was crazy. Was that one of the first times Donald Trump called for... Um, media. I feel like that was like I sort of one so. of the first incidents too, where Donald Trump was like insisting on trying to make a call about a journalist needing to step down or needing to yeah. sort of take back something that they had said about his administration. Yeah. And it's really sort of like that hasn't really been done by a president before. So it really was sort of intense. And ESPN, of course, like stood by her. But I think, you know, just the things that she wanted to do and the things that the network wants to do were just not really lining up anymore. So she eventually stepped away. But you know what, guys? She's doing okay. She is a writer at The Atlantic. Swank! She's also hosting a new podcast. Yes, another woman in the podcast space. I'm so excited about it. It just launched and it's called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Ooh. And she narrated probably one of my most favorite documentaries of recent memory called Shut Up and Dribble, produced by LeBron James. It is so good. It's on Showtime. And it really, like, talks about the history of racism within pro basketball. Y'all, I am so glad you're going to hear from her. She's so delightful, funny, witty, smart, warm, gracious. Jamel Hill is the motherfucking truth. Thank you so much for joining us today on So Many White Guys. I want to start with Shut Up and Dribble, which I absolutely loved. You know, I remember as a kid going to see the Cavs when Larry Nance was still playing. Oh my, and, look at that. Yeah, and we had like sort of like kind of like nosebleed seats because we like couldn't afford like better seats. <laughs> so I've been like such a huge fan of basketball like my whole life. I, I want to know, um, what about this documentary intrigued you that made you be like, I want to be a part of this? Well, um, the content for one. Mm-hmm. It was actually supposed to be a broader just sort of story of basketball talking about the players and the game and their influence on culture. So fast forward to Laura Ingram saying shut up and dribble and then some light bulbs went off. So keep the political commentary to yourself or as someone once said shut up and dribble. And they decided to change the course of it and make it more about how Throughout the history of basketball, uh, certainly a, a professional basketball, how black athletes have been told in one form or another to shut up and drill. Mm-hmm. And so they came to me and, you know, it was really something that I was just really proud to be a part of it. And, yeah, obviously for it to be, you know, associated uh, or a project of LeBron James, you know, mm-hmm. that was kind of like a cherry on the top. Yeah. Um. So it's on Showtime. And one of the first things that you say, and it really, I love this quote because I just was like, oh, my God, ding, 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 ding. In America, black athletes were supposed to be the workers, not the owners. 
They were supposed to be the talent and never the power brokers. That was how it was supposed to be. I think a lot of times, you know, everyone loves sports in this country. And we sort of have to ignore a little bit the power dynamics that go into it in order to enjoy it. And being someone who writes about sports, and you also write about race, how do you sort of reconcile the way that athletes are sometimes treated with your love of sports? Yeah, and it could be really tough because, Mm -hmm. you know, along those same lines, you also, especially being a Black woman, have to reconcile with the fact that there are issues of sexual assault and domestic violence that are rampant throughout sports as well as homophobia and all these other things. But what I'd like to focus on with sports and part of the reason why I was always drawn to writing about sports as opposed to other topics is it's one of the few things in this country that truly does bring us together. Mm. Despite its own complicated issues and dynamics, Most of us, we don't go to church with different people. We don't eat with different people. We don't do a lot of things with people who are from different backgrounds and different cultures. But what happens when it's the Olympics? What happens when it's the Super Bowl? We all come together to talk about fantasy football, to talk about who's going to win the Super Bowl. It has this amazing ability to unite us. And so um, that's the part that will keep me coming back to sports. Can you talk about some of your first memories with sports and like what was that moment where you're like, oh, this means something to me. It's special. I don't remember being introduced to sports. I remember Mm. always loving sports and being drawn to it. And, um, you know, it kind of stirring my soul in a different way. So growing up as a kid, my favorite sport was actually baseball. Mm. And I'm from Detroit, so I'm a huge Tigers fan. And, um, My mother at the time, she was cleaning houses um, and she used to clean the home of an elderly man named Mr. Miller. Mm -hmm. She could not afford a babysitter. So there were a lot of times I had to tag along with her, Mm -hmm. you know, as she cleaned his house. And he would sit in his family room and watch Tigers games. He also had the newspapers and he was a very nice man. And I, I feel like at some point he said it was okay if I sat and watched a game with him and it became a ritual. And so those were sort of my earliest remembrances is really baseball. I remember when the Tigers won the World Series and I was nine years old. I can still name off that whole team to this day. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm not going to make you do it, but that's I, look, amazing. I can stunt, man. <laughs> I can stunt. I'm just like Dan Petrie, Chad Lemon, Daryl Evans played first base, Marty Castillo played third. Like, I can go. Trust oh, me. Yes. <laughs> I can stunt. I was like, Larry Herndon, yeah. how deep do you want to go? Guillermo Hernandez, who is our reliever. Like, how deep do you want me to go? <laughs> that's amazing. And so, you sort of fell in love with sport or were always sort of involved in sports. And I think as someone who also loves watching sports, I think, you know, there is this tendency for people to just sort of be like, but do you really? Because you're a woman, like, really? Yeah, they always try on us. Yes, yeah. right? <laughs> and so when you um, decide that you wanted to make it your career and write about it, what was the process like? What what made you be like, this is not, no longer just something that I love, but I really want to provide like my perspective on it and help shape the vision of it? So the two things I most loved to do as a kid were watching sports and writing. And so when I got to high school, I decided to take a high school journalism class as an elective. And uh, the way it worked 
in Detroit was that uh, we had to actually go down to the professional paper to put our paper together Mm. Um, because the free press ran a special insert once a month that had all the high school newspapers in the city. But nevertheless, the first time that I walked into a professional newsroom, I was instantly hooked and knew this is what I wanted to do. And the more amazing thing was that it was never something that um, I looked at as Oh, you know, as a woman, I really shouldn't be doing this. Even though I didn't see other women doing it, I didn't know any other women doing it. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know any journalists. You know, I I had very limited contact. And so for that still to be a persistent passion of mine, um, I guess it just speaks to just kind of this, um, you know, inner drive that I had to, to tell stories and to, you know, not just tell the stories of athletes, but the story of competition. Sports gives you such drama. And I was really attracted to that drama, to the emotion it could bring out in people. And I wanted to write about that. Do you have like any sort of like funny or embarrassing sort of moments when you first started out when you're sort of like still trying to get your sea legs and you're <laughs> you're making those rookie mistakes, you know? <laughs> oh, I made a ton. Yeah. You know, I remember. <laughs> so uh, the thing about sports is that, you know, we're a little less formal than, say, other departments at a, at a newspaper. And. You know, I think I probably took that a little too far because we're a little, you know, we're casual, you know, like on the if you go to the politics desk, most of them are in in ties. And, you know, because they're at any moment, if they have to go see a politician or go to the Capitol, you know, they have to be dressed a certain way. But the majority of our interviewing takes place in locker rooms. It Mm -hmm. takes place on the field. So we can wear jeans. It's not a big deal. So your girl used to come into the office. I'd have on like a jersey, some jeans, <laughs> baseball cap to the back, just just looking, and not in that cute Lisa left eye Lopez way, <laughs> but like in that raggedy, like you not waking up and rolling over and going to econ one on one anymore. Like you are coming into an office, and so one of my friends who was you know a fellow reporter on staff, he just was like, "Hey, let me holler at you for a minute." It's like, you know, I get it, we're in sports, but, like, you just taking this casual thing a little <laughs> too far. So I'm going to need you to clean up your appearance a bit when you come into the office. Yeah. So did you, you were talking about appearance and showing up to work and, you know, I work in comedy, which is also male-dominant. Did you ever have any sort of anxiety about, like, your hair? Like, as a black woman where you're like, because we're so judged on it. Yeah. Or is that not really something that— No, we, I mean, I yeah. think I think— any of those things, I felt mm-hmm. more when I got into television. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. particular, when I spent a season as a college football sideline reporter. And that was probably the hardest job I ever did at ESPN. People have this idea that sideline reporting is easy. It is not easy at all. So, like, we didn't travel with a makeup artist or a hairstylist. Mm-hmm. And... Despite the fact that, especially now, I have to wear, you know, makeup all the time. And certainly when I was doing television, I don't know anything about makeup, but I had to make myself up every game. And so I remember one of the makeup artists at ESPN, I literally made her write down all the products that she used on me. She gave me a tutorial, essentially, right there at ESPN to say, okay, this is how you blend this. And so for that whole season, I wore one look, one makeup look, because that's all I knew how to do. And... um, because I was worried that, you know, if people saw me and I look crazy on TV, I didn't want to go viral or anything like that. But it was the same with hair. And understand you're reporting in elements. And, you know, elements are not a black woman's friend sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're reporting in rain and snow. 
And, you know, you might start it looking like Halle Berry, look like something else at the end of it, right? Because <laughs> you're three and a half hours outside. Yeah. You know, so there's just sort of this pressure. Um, the question I get a lot is, did anybody ever have a conversation with me about braids? Because unfortunately, today, in 2019, there's a lot of younger female um, reporters and some men, too, who have locks mm -hmm. that have told me about stories at affiliates in smaller uh, cities, how they've had general managers or bosses say to them, you have to do something with your hair mm. or it's a distraction or and their hair is, is kept very neat. Yeah. But because there's this sort of cultural gap mm -hmm. um, that people don't realize how insensitive they're being when they say that. And, you know, kind of racist, <laughs> not yeah. necessarily racist, but yeah. racist. I'll say that. <laughs> so they still have to put up with that. But, you know, the, there were certain lines in the sand that I was always you know, going to draw. And I remember telling my agent this. I said, the day that anybody at ESPN ever comes to you and says, we need her to change her hair, I'm quitting that day. So there's there's going to be a line in the sand right there. It's like, nah, you don't, you don't tell me what I get to look like yeah. to make you comfortable, essentially. So can you sort of like, um, for people who aren't necessarily familiar, sort of chart your journey into how you got to working at ESPN? So um, I actually have the term baby mama to thank for me being at ESPN. <laughs> and so when I was in Orlando, I, I had this idea to do this series called Riding With. And it was very simple. And uh, all I would do is get in the car with a notable athlete, ask them questions. We tape it. We put it up on the website. And I'd write a Q&A out of our entire conversation. Really, really simple. And so... I was doing one. Um, I think I was. I was doing one on Willis McGay. I think he was the first athlete I did in the series, and I knew Willis McGay. Uh, you know, had a had a couple kids. I think by different mothers, if I wasn't mistaken. So, nevertheless, we're in the car, and just jokingly, um, I said to him, "I was like, hey, Willis, what's um, what's worse, a baby mama or a wife?" <laughs> what would be worse for you? Worst scenario. And he was like, oh, baby mama's the worst. So he started going in on his baby mama, you know, uh, sort of tastefully. Like, he didn't call her out her name. He yeah. was like, they always calling you. Like, he's just going in, right? Yeah. And it's hilarious, honestly. So that is a part of the Q&A. And it went viral. Like, Deadspin picked it up. And the editor at the paper was pissed. Mm. And she was an older white woman. And... She called me and the editor who edited the piece into the office, and she went off on us. She had never heard the term baby mama. Talk about cultural discipline. Oh, wow. She had not heard the Where term. Where has she been? <laughs> Look. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that, yeah. That's that cultural struggle, man. Yeah. Like I was like, you realize it's a common term. She was like, it's offensive. I was like, how you going to tell me? I'm black. I know what it is. Like, right? So... She was so heated and was like, you know, I, she was going to suspend us. Like, honestly, wow. yeah, I was like, if you think, I'm thinking about that in hindsight. And as someone who has had a couple of suspensions, I'm like, <laughs> I literally almost lost my job over the term baby mama. Yeah. Like, that's just, <laughs> well, anyway, you know, that's journalism why black. But anyway, <laughs> um, so it went viral, as I said. It caught the eye of an executive at ESPN. Um, and... At the time, I was the only black female sports columnist at a daily newspaper in North America. And I say North America. No, I notice I didn't say America. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was the only one. One out of 305, right? Wow. So um, he, this executive, just had seen the clip and he saw some of my other stuff. And he was like, hey, what would you think about um, 
you know, coming to ESPN to interview. And so um, I was like, yeah, you know, sure. And ESPN was never on my vision board. The, the, the place I wanted to work at the most that was with Sports Illustrated because I'm a writer, mm, you know, yeah. and that was, that was the magazine of record for sports writers. And so I went to ESPN, met with 2,000 people, and I got the job. So I want to ask you about ESPN because you said that in all your years at ESPN, no one ever told you what to talk about and what not to talk about. But then, you know... Twitter happened. Right. And it was clearly a lie. Yeah. Right. I got you. So, can you sort of um, talk about what what do you feel maybe changed where they were sort of kind of like, okay, whoa, 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 you can't say that much? So, here's the tricky part about being a a journalist, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. just apply to ESPN. Every place I've ever worked in media has been like this. And it's unfair in some regards to ask journalists to do this. But the profession requires you almost to step outside of your own body. Mm-hmm. And um, what you become as a journalist is a symbol for accuracy and fairness and truth and all these these wonderful core principles. You're supposed to distance your emotion and who you are as a person, who you are as a black person in particular, to perform the task of being a journalist. Uh, social media, of course, put a lot of media companies in very awkward positions. Mm-hmm. But there was always limits on what we could do. You know, every newspaper I worked at, you could not have political signs on your yard or bumper stickers that talked about, like, you couldn't have the pro-life one, couldn't have the pro-choice one. So ESPN has a social media policy. um, And it was one that had to evolve, you know, uh, through the changing times and through some of the people at ESPN, including myself, you know, making um, mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. frankly. And what happens is that people do not give you the distance um, or the space to be like, okay, this is coming from her and not ESPN. Those are one and the same. So I, that's why I always understood how they reacted because whatever I said was always going to be attached to them. So, you know, they had to have certain limits about what you could say. And that is the realities of, of corporate America. I mean, I, I remember... There was somebody, uh, one of my former colleagues at ESPN, um, he had uh, he had tweeted something negative about Chipotle, right? <laughs> Which I questioned anyway. I was like, dude, no one has anything negative to say about Chipotle. That's just not even possible, right? <laughs> yeah, they're universal. Yeah, thank like, you. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, you know, I remember when they had that bacteria scare, I was like, I'm going down with the ship. They got to get me. Sorry. <laughs> you know, that, that, chicken, uh, that chicken burrito bowl is worth it. So, and anyway, he tweeted something negative about Chipotle. And, you know, he had to take it down because they were... They advertise with ESPN. And so um, same thing has happened to me. Yeah. Right? And so there were limits. And, you know, one of those was delving into politics in terms of being pro or against certain candidates because they're very much aware they have an audience. They want to appeal to everybody. And in their minds, and look, the way people react to this, I, again, understand their thinking that if the 6 p.m. sports interviewer finds out I hate Donald Trump, all the Donald Trump supporters that watch won't watch the show because they know how I really feel. Yeah. So when people are like, oh, freedom of speech, not a freedom of speech issue. Yeah. (laughs) It's unfortunately what comes with the with the territory. So when I sent those tweets about the president, um, well, one, I did not expect it to blow up the way that it did. Mm -hmm. But I think it was because I was at ESPN and more specifically 
in the job of being the six o'clock sports center anchor, which is a very high profile job. That is why it gained so much traction. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, criticized ESPN for how they felt like they treated me. And uh, I've often said not in, you know, not trying to cape for him, but it's just like, yeah, I mean, two things can be true at the same time. You know, what I said was true, and yeah, I had a right to say it, but they have a right to protect the brand that is ESPN. So yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. I think what's interesting, this was also featured in Shut Up and Dribble, that there are moments where you can choose to say something or not say something. I think this idea of maybe objective journalism, while that sounds great, when you're in the sort of time that we're in right now, just being like, well, I'm just going to be objective. Every side is all equal. I'm just going to not say anything. It just feels like maybe that's not, I don't want to say like authentic, but it's just sort of like, it seems like a little bit out of touch from reality if you don't yeah. have an opinion right now. No, you know I, what but, I mean? but I guess what I would say mm -hmm. is that being objective doesn't prevent you from calling out dumb stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's my aggravation really with media now is when we lose our ability to tell the truth, we have literally lost all of our credibility, mm -hmm. right? So you're still an objective journalist if you call out the president lying to the American public on a routine basis because that's true, yeah, <laughs> right? But I think the part that is unrealistic to your point and out of touch is expecting journalists, especially black journalists, especially a black female journalist, to be able to distance her identity mm -hmm. um, or my identity, because I don't talk about myself in the third person. <laughs> I like that, her identity. Yes, own it. <laughs> to distance myself from yeah. my own identity. Because mm -hmm. even after the tweets, when you know I was called into the, the, the president's office, president of ESPN, uh, he's no longer the president of ESPN, I told him that, look, this is the, the reality is that right now in this time, as a black woman in America, I feel marginalized and under attack, OK, that there is a stench in the air. It's always been a slight odor, but now <laughs> it stank. OK, yeah. <laughs> all right. That's what it is. Yeah. OK. And so um, you want me to come into work every day. And care about Blake Bortles. And I'm telling you, that's hard to do when I'm looking at all this nonsense mm -hmm. that is going on in our world and in our country in particular, especially seeing a leadership that is coming for people that look just like me. I was like, there's just some days I just ain't got that capability. And that day I sent that tweet was that day. Yeah. And it's just it's is what it is. So I think that's the part that is 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 tough um, that. Every black journalist has has to manage figuring out a way to manage your professionalism and your blackness. And not that those are have to be mutually exclusive, but there are going to be instances where you have to choose which one of these, you know, um, it's like uh, the great philosopher Amanda Seal says, how black am I going to have to be? Today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So you, you're just constantly sort of you know, measuring that. And, and it, that doesn't just apply to black journalists. Black people go through this every day. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, keep sports and politics separate. But I'm always <laughs> like, sports to me has always been political, whether it is, 
you know, making sure no one sort of says anything because we don't want to offend anyone or, you know, the Great White Hope with like Larry Bird. There's always these moments where sports is politicized and sometimes it's not overt. So what is your thought on that? Do you feel like sports has always been political? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think um, I'll start here in the sense that like I, I think we need to stop saying so many things are political when some things, a lot of things are just right and wrong. Mm. Right. Because, you know, when there's a discussion about sports and race and, you know, that stick to sports crowd is like, oh, I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want sports and politics. I was like, well, when you say the word politics, that implies that there is a pro argument and a con argument. Is there a pro and con argument for racism? I think not. Right. So how is that political? (laughs) There's not two sides to racism. Right. There's one side. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I I think the people that say that usually it's about the issue and not about, you know, them caring about whether or not sports and politics mix. You know, the moment that you decide to patronize an arena or if you watch a team, you have invested yourself in politics because if sports didn't have any politics in it, why is it that owners of teams come to taxpayers for money to fund their stadiums? So that is political (laughs) already out of the bat. Right. And you have all these owners of sports teams and, uh, you know, presidents of leagues and all these things giving money to political campaigns. So they're not sticking to sports. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, we found that, you know, sports can't help but to be messy. You know, we I think sports fans. While, again, it sounds like a nice idea, and I get that sports is entertainment, and I think this is why they've fallen into this booby trap. They like to act like sports is happening in an alternate universe Mm -hmm. that is not actually this country or this world. It's happening in the same place. So, of course, it's going to be impacted by the the same issues. Yes, there's homophobia in sports because there's homophobia in this world. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is, you know, domestic violence in sports and gender violence and all these other issues in sports because it's in the world. And so I I just think some of it is fans being a little disingenuous. And some of it is, I think, just because, especially now, um, every day we are mentally traumatized by the things happening in our country. They need the illusion that, oh, there's got to be this one place that I can go. And for these two hours or this hour and a half, I do not have to think about, you know, Rome is burning, basically. Yeah. I get that. I understand that. It's just not true, <laughs> you know. Um, so I want to read um, this quote from uh, one of your columns about the idea of going high. I really, really loved it. Um, so I'm just going to read it to you and then we can talk about it a little bit. Most black people have been told practically since the womb that they have to be twice as good to get half as much as anybody white. They've also been conditioned to believe that maintaining the moral high ground and being a bigger person is the only way to defeat racism. That often means suppressing natural human emotions that could communicate racism's devastating impact. Girl. <laughs> I wrote that? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think it's something that people don't even think about in terms of like what they're asking people of color to do in the face of racism and being the ones to defeat it but also not really talk about it and mm-hmm. also do it with a smile and face so can you just sort of unpack why you wrote this and how you think that people can maybe sort of lessen the burden 
of black people to have to solve racism? Well, I, in general, I've, one of my frustrations with racism is always that the people who are most oppressed and victimized by it have also been given the responsibility of solving mm -hmm. it. As long as that remains the approach, mm -hmm. we'll never get anywhere. And I've, I've said the same thing before, like when it comes to, you know, whenever there's discussion about uh, women and, and sexual violence, as long as the conversation is built around how we what we have to do to not get raped, we're not going anywhere with this. Yeah. Right. Because um, that's literally impossible. So with that, you know, in mind. I, I watched the, the, the funeral of, of George H.W. Uh, Bush, like mm -hmm. a lot of people, and I was very struck about what happened when Donald Trump showed up. You know, on this one particular pew, it was uh, the Trumps, the Obamas, and the Clintons. So as soon as uh, Donald Trump and Melania show up, Barack Obama and uh, Michelle Obama, they acknowledge him I believe uh, Barack Obama even shook his hand. And I know they're at a funeral. I realize that this is the world is watching. But it just struck me in that moment how sad that was. Because, you know, it didn't happen. Hillary Clinton never looked that way. She was like, yeah. I'll be damned. Okay? <laughs> After you done called for me to go to jail and all this other stuff, no, sir. Yeah. Right? She was, like, fully in her bag. Yeah. But I was struck by the very differences of that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote it. It was, so here is the Obamas who have had to be perfect in every possible way. You know, it was... In history, when we look back on this, we're going to be like, so we went from President Obama to Donald Trump? Like, we really did that? Like, this dude had to be perfect. But this dude, I mean, he called Obama everything but a child of God. He tried to delegitimize his entire presidency. That's what he ran on. And he got to shake his hand. What? Nah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it was a great quote, and Michelle Obama was completely correct. Mm -hmm. When they go low, we go high. But... You know, as the piece says, it's like sometimes I just wish we just cut somebody out, keep it moving. Like, you know what? You got to sit in this discomfort and I don't care. Right? You got to sit in it. Like, sorry. Yeah. You know, and it is it is something that unfortunately um, uh, has happened so many countless times where there is such, you know, glowing praise for the black person that forgives mm -hmm. somebody who has done something really racist. It is it's sort of like, well, part of the reason that these people keep trying folks and thinking they could get away with it is because we provided a safety net for it. Mm -hmm. And with this whole forgiveness debacle, it's like, no, nah, you don't get to be forgiven. You don't get to feel comfortable about what you just did. Yeah. So um, it just uh, it just is sort of a reminder of kind of these things that we sometimes get saddled with because it winds up, you know, being a, a sanitized version of of what the real trauma of racism is. Um, I, I don't think people fully understand the, the scope of it in terms of like how it's not only cost people their lives, but it's it's changed the the course of human history. Mm. It, it totally has. Mm -hmm. And so we need to to understand what its true gravity is instead of walking around asking people to forgive them for things they don't deserve to be forgiven for. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun and amazing. And you're just incredible. Well, I do appreciate that. All right. Thank you. Jamel Hill, y'all. I'm so glad we got to hear her perspective. She breaks it all the way down. 
I also wasn't expecting a Lisa Left Eye Lopez reference in her interview. I and was so glad we got it. <laughs> I know. One of my favorites. Her condom glasses. I know. That was like so cool. I know. TLC was like ahead of its time, I feel like. Well, that's because the reason she did that is because they wanted to start a conversation about HIV and AIDS. Yes. Using your platform for good, bitches. Um, sorry to cuss you out. <laughs> You're listening like I'm on your side. Like <laughs> we know Phoebe. <laughs> I also liked when um Jamel talked about taking notes from the ESPN makeup artist to do her look because that is as a woman of color on TV, you get very stressed about hair and makeup if you don't have the right person to help you do it. So um it was cute. She only had one look, and I've been there because I will just only wa- rock, like, one look. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even think I know how to do a look. <laughs> what you see is what you get, people. I'm wearing Ooh. corduroy overalls. Ooh. I'm bringing some farmer some <laughs> farmer realness to the big city, people. Yes, honey. You are moving hay. <laughs> Milk that cow. Okay. You know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a disrespectful way to end, end no, this amazing interview. I love milking cows. <laughs> Never done it. <laughs> I did once and I had to dr- stop drinking milk for months because <laughs> it was so real. It was so warm. Oh, It was too much. <laughs> Jamel, you deserve so much better. Yeah. <laughs> but it's time to go. Please be sure to listen to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's gonna be huge so you want to say you were there from the beginning um and now i think it's time for some freaking credits do you want to do it this time joni you know what phoebe Mm -hmm. i'd love to oh the so many white guys team includes Anne-Marie baldonado joanna salataroff Paula Schumann, Joe Plord, Keegan Zemma, Isaac Jones, Noor Wazwaz, and moi, Phoebe Robinson. <laughs> Our theme song was written by a white dude and sung by a bunch of other white dudes. You can find some hot behind-the-scene moments of Jamel and I on Twitter at WNYC Studios. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DopeQueenFeeds. Oh, crrr! And you know you want to see me up close, IRL, while I'm on the road with my stand-up tour called Sorry Harriet Tubman. Find out what I mean by that name. Go to PhoebeRobinson.com and see when I'm coming to your town. Bye! Ooh, that was a really good impression of me. (laughs) I live to serve, Phoebe. (laughs) 